3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday breakfast, 3CR, 855am. It is the 29th of October, and uh, we are coming to you with a pretty packed show again. Um, it's also been a pretty intense week so far. We're recording this on the Tuesday. And um, on Monday, obviously, there was some really big news, um, some good news and some really awful news. Um, first of all, hearing that um, in the case of Kamandaya Walker, uh, there's now going to be a trial. And uh, this is the first time that a conviction has then gone to trial for the death of an Aboriginal person in custody. So um, really something to keep an eye out for. And um, I would suggest that people follow at Justice for Walker on Instagram for updates about that. Um, and also, yeah, some pretty heavy news from the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. Um, Carly, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, so listeners... Um you might already be aware that there has been some destruction already of some of the sacred sites at Japarong. Um, and already earlier this week, there's been 50 arrests. And um, I'm sure that we'll see some more um, yeah, police arrests later on this week. And Priya, um, I believe we've got the details for listeners so that they can call the Premier and also other people in government um, to try and stop police, yeah, arresting more people and cutting down sacred trees. This is an update from Wednesday, the 28th of October. So the Victorian Supreme Court agreed to issue an injunction realignment of the Western Highway until 2 p.m. on the 29th of October. So that's today, Thursday, um, in relation to the Jabberung trees. And the matter is being listed for a directions hearing in the practice court at 10.30 a.m. this morning. That is Thursday, the 29th of October. Um, the matter is being raised between Marjorie Thorpe versus the head of Transport for Victoria, the Minister of Transport and the Secretary for the Department of Transport and the State of Victoria. And it looks like, yeah, works have stopped um, at least until 2 p.m., but really um, important for people to continue following along from updates from the Jabberwung Heritage Protection Agency. So you can find them on social media. Um, Facebook is, I think, where they're most active. And if you can support there by trying to get to camp to uh, bolster defense of the trees and also um, try and call into the premier's office, uh, call Sassan Lay's office, call Major Projects Victoria, just to let them know that you're really distressed as we are about the directions tree being cut down and we want to prevent any further destruction. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been a pretty heavy time 
But I think the conversations that we're trying to have this week as well are looking towards how we how we grapple with crisis, how we grapple with some of these concerns and move forward a bit. So, Carly, do you want to kick us off with a rundown? Yeah. So first up, you'll hear a conversation that I have with Adam Wilson, who is the senior drug outreach lawyer at Fitzroy Legal Service. And he speaks to me about the effects that policing and surveillance amidst COVID-19 is having on some of Fitzroy Legal Services clients. After that, I speak with Aisha, who's a Batak and Jawa mother, storyteller and community organizer, who joined me to discuss their narrative essay, Undocumented, which was released earlier this month by Incendium Radical Library. Undocumented will be launched online on the 6th of November, and you can head to our Instagram at at 3CR Thursday Breakfast and check the links in our bio to find out more information about that release um, and figure out where to find the book as well. And then we hear an interview with new senator for Victoria, Lydia Thorpe, and she joins Viv Marlowe and Maruki Onis from 3CR's The Black Block. And they discussed Senator Thorpe's first week in Parliament and her plans for bringing grassroots Aboriginal voices to the Senate. And finally, I speak with Hannah Amwiro, who's a board member at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Hannah speaks with me about the recent cuts to Radio Skid Row's operational funding and the station's push this week to fundraise to be fully grassroots and community owned. I know that Radio Skid Row is based in Sydney's inner west, but I really encourage all of you who love listening to Radical Radio to make sure that you stay tuned in for that interview and spread the word about the fundraiser so that we can keep Radio Skid Row alive. Now we'll go to Kate Kelly with the news. Good morning. I'm Kate Kelly, and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. A parliamentary inquiry has heard that black deaths in custody should be independently reviewed by First Nation investigators, with the levels of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders behind bars at inhumane levels. So the inquiry is in its first week of examining the high rates of overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in jails across New South Wales. Tony McAvoy, who is the New South Wales Bar Association and Australia's first Indigenous silk, told the parliamentary inquiry that independent oversight is needed to improve accountability of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody. The inquiry heard there have been 50 separate reports on Indigenous deaths in custody, with Mr Avoy saying that the previous recommendations from dozens of reports and recommendations could hold the key for change. The families of those who have lost loved ones in custody hope that this inquiry will bring about systematic change, with more than 120 submissions from families, advocates and legal experts. And closer to home, Melbourne's arts and live music scene has this week witnessed the much-loved Cultural Institution Festival Hall being sold to the Hillsong Church. Announcing the news of the sale via YouTube, the Hillsong founder told his um, congregation that by God's grace we've been able to purchase Festival Hall. So the news comes just two years after the venue was granted permanent heritage protection following attempts by developers to demolish the building in order to make way for yet another apartment block. 
at the time the venue was on the market, a consortium of entertainment groups was looking to purchase the venue. However, when COVID-19 closed Melbourne's um, live entertainment venues in March, that transaction fell through. Hillsong, the underbidder, was quickly placed into due, due diligence, which was finally successful and settled on October 16 to the tune of almost of over sorry over 23 million dollars. And the Climate of the Nation report has found that 80% of Australians think heating effects are now being felt, and only 12% have backed the government's gas-led recovery. So the latest Climate of the Nation report, an annual national survey of almost 2,000 voters um, that has been running for 13 years now, was launched on Wednesday, Wednesday by New South Wales Environment and Energy Minister Matt Keane. The survey has found that 74% of the sample remains concerned about climate change, which is the same level as last year, and 80% of respondents think we are already experiencing climate change impacts. So over the past five years, the number of Australians saying they believe in climate change is already happening has increased by um, 15 points. The survey shows the number of Australians who think we experience the impact of climate change a lot has increased from just 33% in 2016 to 48% in 2020. And the survey also suggests Australians are cool on the Morrison government's gas-led recovery, with 59% of respondents saying the recovery should be powered by renewables compared to 12% who favour gas. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident, or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We're going to go into a track by Jesswa. This one's called Venom. Got venom in my lyrics, bodies drop when I spit it. 
give it. I'll make the haters live it at the way that I kill it. I keep a bouncer like a pair of double D's. I'm awake when you sleep from the flights overseas. I know they waiting for the day that I leave, but I wrote this song just to haunt them in their dreams. And you can tell by the way that I lean that I do this with ease, and it ain't a damn thing. Up the stage, I can still hear them scream, and I came a long way from long lines in the lane. Got myself at the gutter, still sounding like butter, still moving like a runner. Throw me to the dogs, but I'm bad to the bone. Keep throwing their rocks, but my body made of stone. I put them in a line, then I cut them like blow. Clever with the rhymes, make it glitter till it's gold. When I arrive at the gates, the first thing I say is, Hey bro, get the fuck off my phone. Come and get it. Still waiting for the credit. Got venom in my lyrics, bodies drop when I spit it. Come and get it. Song there was Venom by Jeswa. Hi, 3CR listeners. I am Listic from your sister station, Radio Skid Row, in Sydney. On top of everything 2020 has thrown at us, at Radio Skid Row, we are now facing our toughest challenge yet, and we need your support. For the first time in 30 years, the Community Broadcasting Foundation did not award us any funding for operations. From our perspective, these funding cuts are a contradiction of the core values of community radio to give the people a voice. We have launched a huge new fundraising campaign, which is running until December. By donating to Radio Skid Row, you are securing the future of radical grassroots media by and for the community. Go to Start Some Good. Dot com slash Radio Skid Row 2020 and donate now. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And today I'm joined by Adam Wilson, Senior Drug Outreach Lawyer at Fitzroy Legal Service. Adam joins us on the show today to talk about policing, surveillance and COVID-19 on his clients, particularly people who have dependencies on alcohol and drugs. Thanks, Adam, for joining us on 3CR. Uh, It's great to be here. (laughs) <laughs> so, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Fitzroy Legal Service? Uh, yes. Um, I, I'm the senior lawyer in the Drug Outreach Program, as you said, and we, we um, uh, provide legal services to Victorians who are, whose engagement with the legal system is, is underpinned by drug use. And uh, we work with health and, and social supports, um, you know, and improved access to justice for, for like what are very highly marginalised 
community members um, through our partnerships with uh, the North Richmond Community Health, the injecting room there. There's also Inner Space, Odyssey House, which is a rehabilitation uh, program. We have WISIS, which is for young people. Uh, mostly, and that's that, those relationships have been ongoing for many, many years in the city of Yarra. Um, I'm also the living room, which is a youth project in the city, which is um, which is a health a allied health service for for people for rough sleepers and and people who use drugs. And then also we stretch out into um, the city of Darabin now. At, um, Fitzroy Legal Service is an amalgamation of both Darabin Community Legal um, Centre and then also Fitzroy Legal Service. So so we're now in. Um, the uh, Darabin area through our partners, United Care Regen, which is another um, AOD service provider, and um, and also Wises are out there too. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, COVID-19 has impacted all of us um, greatly in so many different ways. Can you talk about the ways in which COVID-19 and especially the Victorian government's response to COVID-19, how that's impacting your clients? In some ways, you know, there, there has been a, a really positive response in relation to um, the provision of temporary housing for the homeless community, and that, that's been great. So, so many of uh, the clients that we, we um, represent now have a, a home. It's temporary at the moment, often it's in a hotel, but that, that has been a, a, a huge positive impact in their life. Um, concerningly, though, many of our other clients who are homeless are still, are still receiving um, potentially even more police attention than normal um, because of the fact that there, there is less people on the street and um, the reality is that... Um, that many of our clients are on the street um, because we, many of our clients are homeless. They also have um, mental health issues, many of them. Um, and then also the fact is um, to, to use drugs safely, you actually need to go to, um, to, to health services um, sometimes, like such as the injecting room and concerningly, we have had clients who have um, received infringements during that time, and they can be really stressful. These these um, fines are huge. They're sixteen hundred dollars. There's there's no way someone who um, is struggling just to just to pay the rent is going to be able to find the funds for that. But mm, I mean, yeah, you talked about um, so the injecting room. Um, is that in Richmond? The one you're talking about? Yes, there is the only the one in Victoria. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so has that now uh, just kind of uh, shut its physical doors um, due to COVID-19? No, no, no. They're, they're still open. So um, reduced capacity, as is everything. So, yeah. so um, yeah. But, but they are still opening and still operating. They've operated the whole way through uh, this pandemic. So, so hats off to them. Um, they've done a really great job job um, just addressing all of those issues um, as far as um, uh, screening goes and uh, but they are at a, at a reduced capacity but um, I mean the other con the other concerns is, is 
the fact that um, everything else is at reduced capacity as well. So so if if you wanted to go to a uh, residential rehab, there's there is a reduced capacity there. So you know if, if in some ways um, all types of health services have just paused, well or, or to a slow drip. Yeah. So. Um... When you're speaking to your clients, what are the alternatives for them if, say, they are wanting to go into a residential rehab and now the wait list is gone from a few weeks to now months? Well, I mean, it was never a few weeks. It could be. <laughs> so, so you know, it's it's just a little longer. So you've just got to be, um, you've just got to be patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um which is hard to say, which is hard to, you know, like when the, when the time to act is potentially right there and then. But, I mean, we, we're all trying to deal with this and, and slowly but surely um, we're becoming less reactive and, and more about um, you, um, long-term uh, commitments to, to service in this crazy world. But still, it's, it's really difficult because um, engagement it still involves some technology when you can't meet face to face, and uh, sometimes with with people who use drugs, the first thing to go if you if you're um, and not to say not to say that that potentially um, drugs are, are are a big issue in their lives, but but say say if it is something you can see there are there are issues, um, your phone might be the first thing that that you want to want to ditch or that number. So, so then you have to start again and, and find a new phone number, etc. Um, so, you know, that's been that's been a blessing for the clients in relations to um, engagement, being able to pick up the phone and talk to your worker instead of potentially being homeless, potentially having all these health issues, physical health issues, um, mental health issues, and 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 having another appointment that you have to remember. The phone starts ringing, you can answer it, and then you are engaging. With, with that worker, I mean, that's been a real positive. But, but on the other end of that, um, if you don't have that technology, it's, it's been a massive barrier to services and also the court now because the court is completely online. Um, you can't go to the court. If you go to the court, you will be refused entry. <laughs> so, so, um, these matters are just, um, that, that some clients have pending. It could be something really simple like a shop theft, potentially that was um, committed or allegedly committed a year ago, but it was listed in March, um, late March, and now it's just adjourning out and out until um, until potentially we can either resolve it online or on the papers um, or or when this, this pandemic blows over, 2030 or something along those lines. <laughs> And you did briefly talk about a lot of your clients um, receiving more fines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, we we have clients that are potentially going to a health service that doesn't have parking out the front, um, and then they've been and then they've been stopped, and and potentially. Um, well, they have been um, charged with with drug possession charges, as well as as well as um, not wanting to 
to draw attention to themselves, police attention to themselves, so not actually um, disclosing that they're going um, to use their drugs at a, at a health facility. So um, not wanting that unnecessary attention, which may lead to a um, to a search, which has led to a search. Yeah, um, we've had clients um, that are not wearing face marks and who have mental health um, mental health issues. So there is the ex- that exemption that does exist for them, but they've been un- unable to communicate that. So they've uh, they have received that fine on on several occasions, many occasions, um, and shopping and not being able to explain that um, effectively. So then consequently receiving that 1600 and something dollar fine. I think, like, the, the biggest issue that we're having is that um, that there needs to be special protections for a very vulnerable um, part of the community, you know, people with, um, with drug dependency. Uh, they need to be able to access services. There needs to be that, that discretion and potentially there needs to be more education from those in enforcement agencies to understand that. Um, I mean, we do have that. We have we have an in um, we have the Infringements Act, which you know um, has that flexibility to to uh, address special circumstances that do exist in relation to homelessness, drug dependency issues, etc. But um, but it, it would be nice to nip it in the bud. Before that fine is is there, adding an extra stress unnecessarily into um, into a person's life that that potentially is already full of stresses. There is no room for anything more to be there. So yeah, we'll get through this, <laughs> but um, it's not helping the situation. One thing that is uh, particularly concerning to us, um, working with people who do use drugs, is that it is is significantly up the um, the amount of people being charged with drug related uh, charges. Uh, it's up more than forty percent um, from this time last year. That's based on the um, the Crime Statistics Agency's September um, report. Which is which is really concerning, and and also what we're, we're finding ourselves anyway, but is demonstrated through the actual um, through the statistics um, from the Crime Statistics Agency, is the fact that that many of the um, many of the the people who are uh, being charged well well receiving an infringement for COVID-19. Most aren't actually being charged with anything else, but when they are, um, the 14% of offenders who are, um, there's, there's 4% of, 4%, there's something, there's 190, so I think that's 4% of, of that are charged with drug possession, and then um, the others are really common for both, we see with with our clients who are also homeless, so their 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 um charges of of being drunk and disorderly in a public place, breaching bail conditions, um, but these these sort of to us 
uh, are red flags and also prohibited and controlled weapons, which are normally often just something like scissors in the pockets, which is what you're going to have if you're homeless and, you know, just, just a, it's just a um, utility that you have for day-to-day needs. But um, it's just something that I would flag. Well, that's all we have time for on um, 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast with Adam Wilson. So thank you so much, Adam, for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You're listening to the Thursday Breakfast Show on 3CR 855 AM. Next up, you'll hear an interview with Aisha, who's a Batak and Jawa mother, storyteller, and community organizer on their narrative essay, Undocumented, which was released earlier this month by Incendium Radical Library. Undocumented will be launched online on the 6th of November. Hi, Aisha. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Hi, Priya. Thanks for having me. So could you start by letting listeners know a little bit more about yourself and about the community work that you do? Yeah, for sure. Um, So hi, I'm Aisha, and I am a Batak and Jawa mama from um, who was born here. Um, and grew up on unceded Cabrigal land, which is um, known as southwest Sydney, um, between Liverpool and Bankstown. Um, I, yeah, I guess in terms of the community organising that I do, it's um, it has changed a lot over the years. I think earlier on in my political journey, I was more inclined or more attracted to like direct action in regards to, um, I guess, like issues around asylum seekers and refugees um, and detention. And then whilst that's still very near and obviously very personal to me, um, I think I'm trying to focus a little bit more on like my interpersonal um, relationships and organising in on a smaller scale in terms of like mutual aid and collective care um, and trying to tie that into First Nations solidarity as much as I can. Um, Yeah, that's essentially what I've been up to. And this is definitely sort of the year for digging deep and investing in those immediate networks of of care. Mm -hmm. And um, I think a lot of people are learning for the first time what mutual aid is um, and how it operates to sort of bypass, you know, the crumbling state architecture and Mm -hmm. privatized services that really, you know, don't hold us in the way that we need to be held. Mm -hmm. Um, So your book, Undocumented, recently came out via Incendium Radical Library. Um, how did you first conceive of the piece and how does it relate to some of that community work that you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Stella, who is the editor of the piece, um, actually asked me many months ago before the um, before the restrictions were um, put into place in Sydney. And, yeah, they asked me to write this piece for a publication, um, and they were doing, they were going to be, um, basically commissioning pieces for like an abolition specific column in this publication. And that kind of fell through, um, because of a number of reasons. But essentially we, I had written the piece already, um, and we were, 
workshopping what we would do with it and Incendium popped up, Stella suggested them and then I reached out to Annalise and I was like, who should I speak to to get something published with Incendium? And she was like, oh, that would be me. <laughs> so that was perfect because there was already a, an existing relationship there. And we sort of realized that the values of Incendium very much align with the values that are expressed in the book as well. Um, so initially, yeah, I guess this book was um, Stella approached me to write the piece because we were organizing in similar spaces um, with regards to prisoner solidarity and collective care in general. It was kind of around um, when people were starting to organize like more Black Lives Matter related protests. And um, there was there seemed to be a very urgent need for um, some kind of foundations of care during that time. And I so it was very heavy on my mind, as it has been for a lot of people, uh, in terms of how we can actually like take care of each other in, yeah, like you said, you know, ways that I'd, that are divested from the state. Um, so it was kind of written at the same time as I was organizing those networks of care or part of the collectives that were organizing those networks of care and mutual aid. Um, and it just has taken its own, like the text itself has taken its own life um, that was very much influenced by a lot of that work, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, it definitely did not start, like when I was writing it in the beginning, it definitely felt like it was going to be something else. Um, and now that I look back on it, it has it feels like it had its own, you know, destiny and it reached that point, which I'm really grateful for and obviously very um, thrilled about. The response has been really amazing and also the collaborations, the community collaborations continue to be representative of, I guess, what is written in the book in terms of uh, just collective, um, yeah, just like collective engagement and collective care yeah and I think um the idea that it's sort of turned into something different and taken on a life of its own um is kind of a really beautiful and hopeful um thing in itself and just to step it back for a sec for listeners that aren't really familiar with the concept of community care or how community care and mutual aid work um would you mind, like, I don't know, it, it's a difficult one to try and ask to define, but, I mean, if, if you want to give it a go, I'm all ears. Yeah. Um, I think essentially for me, like, collective care and mutual aid is just, uh, you know, like, for me it's the effort to meet people's material needs, essentially, um, in a way that is done without needing to rely on state intervention. And I think in my own experiences that has, you know, I think my own identity is inseparable from that as someone who grew up um, undocumented and, you know, with like family as ex-detainees, um, like we have never been able to rely on police or, even just emergency services in general. So we've always put into place 
mechanisms that allow us to look after each other, whether that's like, you know, learning to mediate social situations between each other or whether that's like feeding each other, like the community around us and making sure that people get groceries, you know, to their door or um, providing like translated materials for other undocumented families um, to help them with like with legal services. Like I think essentially that it's listening to what people's needs are and finding ways to meet them that is that is decentralized um, in a way that everyone like each role is replaceable and each person can take on a role without you know like organically and and kind of have those like skills shared around in an in a horizontal way um, that's what it is to me I think it, it shifts and changes for a lot of people you know depending on their own personal contexts but for me it's mostly about um, material and emotional needs being met without yeah without a reliance on the state yeah and I mean for people that um, that aren't really familiar with how that's been working here in NARM um, Obviously, you know, it, it's being compromised um, by the lockdowns and by increased policing. And I'm sure, you know, there have been similar challenges um, up where you are. And, um, you know, these sorts of in a way, these sorts of interventions by the state um, supposedly in response to the pandemic, but really just, you know, cracking down on people who are already most marginalized kind of reveals how, how little these systems show up for us when we do need them. Um, so back to undocumented. Um, I noticed that there's beautiful photographs interspersed throughout the essay. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the story that the photographs tell and, and how that interweaves with, with the text itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was really funny, like I was looking for images to be part of the book and I totally overlooked these images I didn't even think about them and then I was looking for another image in my phone and I found um, specifically the one with the two men um, sitting there having a drink and that really stuck out to me it, it felt like it kind of fell into my lap um, and so I ended up choosing that image and the other one of my family um, in a just outside of a caravan. Um, I think these photos were taken during a time where what I talk about specifically in regards to how my family were looking out for each other. Um, yeah, these, these photos were from that time. And so it's very representative of how we, um, how we were living, like our ways of living and what would, you know, maybe be called like abolitionist practices now. Um, yeah, those photos remind me of, of those practices. And also in one, in the image that's the larger group of people, like there, are, there's extended family and randoms who I don't even remember existing <laughs> um, in that photo, which is like very, I think was very beautiful to, for me to reflect on uh, thinking about how there was like this fluidity in community and people who, and, and I think in terms of like being undocumented in general, um, I guess 
everything is very temporary and our memories are very hazy because of trauma. Um, but also, you know, in those, in that temporality, we get to experience beautiful togetherness and connectedness. And I think that photo really represented that for me. And I really wanted to place that where it is in the book now because of that, I guess, like I was saying to you earlier, um, you know, it feels like a reverence for those people in that time. Um, and then the other one is just of my dad and my uncle having a nice time, even though, you know, um, very shortly after that photo was taken, some really messed up stuff happened um, in terms of like deportations and um, detention. So, yeah, it was it's just a celebration of the joy that we can cultivate in regardless of all of the distress that's happening around us or in spite of that distress, I think. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, I think, you know, I'd like to think that, that the sort of work that you're doing through this book also pushes back against, um, I guess the primacy of a resilience narrative that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that sort of, you know, shoehorns, so many experiences of trauma and state bordering and state violence into liberal multiculturalism rather than, yeah, rather than recognizing, um, you know, precisely the way that those violences, um, you know, are constantly contested and circumvented by these networks of, of um, community care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the in the essay, you also bring together these notions of ancestral remembrance and abolition. Um, so I was wondering, how do you think that reaching back into uh, our own roots, your own roots, um, allows us to dream and build towards an abolitionist future? Mm. Yeah, I think it's I think for a lot of people from colonized places, um, there are so many stories that are passed down to us that we are maybe not completely aware of at the time that are that have embedded in those stories actual strategies around like how to build for an abolitionist future um i grew up hearing lots of stories about my ancestors or even like very near ancestors uh engaged in you know direct anti-colonial resistance and a lot of those actions were founded on principles of care um, of of insurgent care and it meant that you know people had to be very covert in how they organized and yeah I I guess I grew up normalizing these stories and, and they are very normal and they're part of our histories but also like there's I think we can unpack them more and learn about like exact strategies um in order to form like blueprints for how we can organize now. And also, you know, like you said, it's a celebration of, of that work as well. So I think that we, um, I think we can also find joy in that kind of organizing. It doesn't always have to be like, you know, stressful and um, born out of crisis. Like I think we can do these things because we have a history of doing these things because we come from a lineage of doing these things and and we can actually like channel that into how 
yeah, how we relate to each other now. Um, I, I guess I, it's, I don't really see, see like the ancestors of, as people who have passed. Um, and I feel them very present in my everyday life. And I think, yeah, I think it's, whilst many of us also have ancestors who were, colonizers and cops and all kinds of like oppressive um or part of oppressive structures we also have we a lot of us also come from lineages of like freedom fighters and um they have always been anti-cop you know regardless of what cops looked like back then and i think yeah i think it's mostly for me it's like mostly about being inspired by or like being informed by the the strategies that they deployed in that time. Yeah. And I think um, something that I really picked up on in your response just then was the way that, you know, drawing on ancestral roots and practices um, also really disrupts the sort of like linear temporality of, of settler time in particular. Mm. Um, you know, thinking, thinking about um, engaging in practices alongside ancestors rather than away from and distant from them. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that that is a really beautiful response and I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, so where can people order Undocumented and find out a bit more about the launch? Yeah, um, so... We, you can order the book. I'm sorry, I kind of feel weird saying like promo stuff. Um, but basically, Incendium have released it through their big cartel. Um, there's currently the first run sold out, but there is a pre-order um, happening for a small run, for another small run. And the launch will be, um, you can find those details on the Fern Collective, um, either Facebook or Instagram, um, or on the Incendium 1, 2, I believe. Um, yeah, which is coming up in a couple of weeks on November 6. Yeah, that's um, going to be an online launch with both Fern or Mo from Fern and um, yeah, and Stella and Annalise and Tilly from Incendium as well. Awesome. And um, we'll link to those uh, launch details in the show notes as well so that listeners can find that and be ready to attend. Um, but, yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, I think that's all. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you, um, Yeah, like you said, like amplifying the work um, and also just holding space for community in general. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time and yeah. Um, all the best with the launch. Thank you so much. And we're back on Thursday breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. So you just heard an interview with Aisha, who's a Batak and Jawa mother, storyteller and community organizer who joined me to speak about their narrative essay, Undocumented. Undocumented was released earlier this month by Incendium Radical Library, which is based here in NARM, and it's going to be launched online on the 6th of November.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Next up, we hear a small part of an interview with the new Senator for Victoria, Lydia Thorpe. She's interviewed by Viv Marlowe and Marie Kionis from 3CR's The Black Block. They discuss Senator Thorpe's first weeks in Parliament and her plans for bringing grassroots community voices to the Senate. So what's it been like? What's, what's been a Senator like? Yeah, tell us about your first couple of weeks in Parliament, Lyd. Yeah. Dear. Well, OK, sure. Uh, so it's been in stage four lockdown, like everybody else uh, in metropolitan Melbourne. So a lot of my uh, early starts on my first, uh, Senate inquiry was actually the Aboriginal flag inquiry and it's very rare to walk into a Senate position and basically a few days later get straight into a Senate inquiry and uh, it reminded me back when I first started in the Victorian Parliament and I was straight in on the treaty legislation negotiating the treaty um, debate uh, and yeah walk, walking into federal parliament going straight into the Aboriginal flag um, I think the higher powers kind of put me in those places at the right time for some reason. Uh, so that was an interesting process. Uh, it's, it's interesting in that uh, a lot of these committees, a lot of the Senate inquiries, they have majority of the government around the table. So uh, even if you wanted to put up a recommendation, um, the government senators can outvote you and and not allow for those recommendations to come through. So you put through what uh, we call like a dissenting report or just extra comments about recommendations that don't get to be the official position of that committee. So that was an interesting process. It was good to see um, grassroots mob participate in, in that inquiry and hear from, you know, people on the ground what they thought about the flag. So that was prior to me actually going to Canberra. I had to do 14-day quarantine in a hotel in Canberra to actually, you know, physically be going to that chamber. Uh, but to be welcomed by traditional owners, Nambri and Ngunnawal mob was just incredibly important for me as a as a black woman and following, you know, proper protocol. So that was just incredible down at the embassy. It started to rain, which was it was actually nice to have a bit of rain on us. So I was a bit worried at first about the hair and the shoes and the makeup, but um, Aunt, you know, soon put me in my place, <laughs> threw the umbrella to the side and said, no, my love, you've got to feel that rain. And I tell you what, when I did, it was just incredible. So that gave me the, you know, the courage to then walk into that place and um, give a salute and, and let that chamber know that I'm bringing in um, grassroots voices here and a struggle, you know, an age-old, 240-year-old struggle into a place that's denied our, our voices and our place in that, in that place for far too long. So it's been good. There's more to come. I've got a Senate, um, got estimates on this week and next week. So we get to really grill the government and all the bureaucrats on where they spend their money. So I'm looking forward to asking that. And my first question tonight is at 9pm. I'm on from 9pm till 11pm for Senate estimates. So it's 
exciting. Sounds really exciting. I just want to go back, though. You, you said that you made a salute, and I saw the video and the photo, and the, you took a message stick in. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, the importance of making that mark and walking into, um, what is it called? Is it the Senate Chambers? Yes. And making that mark, can you talk about the significance of carrying that message stick into Parliament and how that would set your intention in your time there? Yeah, well, look, we, you know, the the constant death in custody of our people is affecting so many of our mob around the country and, and including me personally. You know, no one is, is not affected by... Um, someone being lost to the, the hands of this racist system. And we're running campaigns and we're having Black Lives Matter rallies, which is, which is great and we need to keep the pressure on. But I wanted to go in there with that, that voice and with that struggle to highlight to the Senate but also to the media that each of those markings on that stick represents a life taken by the system that they all endorse that continually oppresses our people and ultimately kills us. So the message stick was smoked down at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy first and, yeah, it's just a symbol, I suppose, of, of how many people we've lost but also how much work we have to do to turn that around and, and change these racist policies and legislation and, and decision-making that goes on in that place. I also wore my possum skin cloak, which I was given in my time at Northcote by people in, a, you know, in the Bendigo local Aboriginal community who gave that possum skin cloak to me for protection. So I felt that I had, you know, I was being protected by my elders, my old people, uh, by going into that place and doing what I had to do, and that was swear allegiance to the coloniser. Uh, so I felt I still had that protection by wearing my my possum skin. So I was, yeah, it was a rash decision to put my fist up. I only thought about it the night before. Freaked out um, my staff. They were a bit worried when they got a text the next morning saying, uh, I'm going to put my fist up. Good morning, everybody. Uh, and that sent everyone into a bit of a tiz, but um, I felt that it was important to to not just walk in there, but to send a strong message of, from our people. And that was sent, and I hope, yeah, received. Uh, I wanted to ask, well, have you had any, I know it's early days, but have you had any, anything that surprised you about your role so far that you didn't expect? Uh, there's a lot of privilege. There's a lot of, um, yes, Senator, no Senator, open the door for you, Senator. And I've, that's, that's only, you know, in my world, that's only reserved for our, our elders. So that's a bit weird and a bit gammon. Mm. <laughs> um, and I just don't feel comfortable with that. I've asked a number of people just to call me Lydia, but it's the Senate rules, it's the parliamentary rules that they do that. And there's a, there's a young Aboriginal woman, in fact, when I first, when oh, I think it was day two that I walked into Parliament and she said, hey, hey, sis. And I'm like, what, what? <laughs> and it was this black woman staffer of Parliament and 
I said, just call me Lydia. She said, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not allowed. And I said, oh, we'll do a secret wave, black fella wave, then every time I come in. <laughs> oh, that's deadly. Yeah, so I don't know. I, look, once, um, yeah, it, it's different. Um, we've got a lot of power, which, you know, let's use it. I want some, um, this is my people's power. It's not mine personally. And I want my people to, to know that. Uh, so, yeah, otherwise... I mean, it's also, you know, just a job for me and it's a job that I've, I'm taking very seriously uh, and it's a job where I'll continue to fight for our people's rights and the betterment of our people. Oh, I think I wanted to ask you, we wanted to ask you a little bit about growing up in Collingwood because 3CR is in Fitzroy, Collingwood and a lot of the listeners and, and community radio supporters and, and presenters are all from in this area and you're from Collingwood, and I know that you've said that a lot in your media and your campaigning. Can you tell us what it's like walking into a room um, where those kind of people make decisions about public housing uh, tenants and, and not usually public housing tenants making decisions for themselves? As someone that grew up in public housing, can you tell us what it's like coming from, you know, Collingwood, the community, and going into spaces like that? Yeah, well, a lot of these people, as I said earlier, they just, they're so out of touch, you know, and people who live in public housing are considered, you know, they've got this stereotype towards people in public housing and that is that we're drunk or on drugs or criminals or, you know, some negative idea on on people who live in public housing. But I think, you know, having a senator coming from public housing and and telling it how it is and how it's a community, it's a safe place. It certainly was a... a it enabled me to get a job. It enabled me to have a safe place for my son. So, you know, it gave me, gave me just that chance in life that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And, you know, our people still out there, the public housing crisis is out of control right now, but everyone deserves a right to a, to a home or a roof over their head and our people are struggling to get those basic rights. So public housing is incredibly important and it needs to stay in public hands. As soon as it gets privatised, then, you know, we've got no controls over what happens or how much people pay. But my time in the flat... 253 Hoddle Street, 5th floor and 11th floor, um, Noon Street, Clifton Hill, George Street, Fitzroy. I've moved around a bit throughout Collingwood and Fitzroy and it's not the same place as it used to be. I certainly couldn't afford to buy in um, Fitzroy and Collingwood these days. But, you know, it was where the struggle, the struggle was and it's where our people were and we always looked after one another. No one was ever left out high and dry without a, a roof over their head or a feed in their belly. So that's what community is about. That's what our people have always been about. And if we can only get the rest of this country to start thinking and acting like we always have, then we should have a you know more caring, united country. And these are the, these are the real-life stories that people need to hear because they live in their privileged bubble and they don't come out of it. Just then you heard a small part of an interview with 
the new Senator for Victoria, Lydia Thorpe, interviewed by Viv Marlowe and Mariki Onus from 3CR's The Black Block. You can listen to the rest of this interview by going to 3cr.org.au forward slash The Black Block and you can scroll down and click on the link. And you can also hear The Black Block live on 855am Mondays from 11am to 1pm. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM. Next up, you're going to hear an interview with Hannah Amuero, who's a board member at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Hannah joins me on the show to talk about the recent cut in Radio Skid Row's operational funding and the station's push this week to fundraise to be fully grassroots and community-owned. Hi, Hannah. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Hi, Priya. Thank you so much for having me on 3CR and hello to all the 3CR listeners. Thanks so much for letting me take up some space on your airwaves. Yeah, solidarity between radical radio stations. So could you start by letting listeners uh, know a little bit more about yourself and your background in community radio? Yeah, so I am a black Arab woman born on Gadigal land here in New South Wales. I started out in community radio at around the age of five because my mum did a show on Radio Skid Row. I now do that show on Radio Skid Row on Sunday mornings. Um, It's called Where We At, and I host it with Sydney Allen, who is an African-American woman from Houston, Texas, uh, that hellscape known as the United States. And we focus on black diaspora perspectives um, living on stolen land. So that's kind of my experience. I also worked at Skid Row as content coordinator, and now I'm currently on the board. Cool, yeah. Um, huge background in recording from the age of five. That's definitely not something that many community broadcasters can boast. Um, but this week, Radio Skid Row, uh, which is based in Sydney's Inner West, launched a fundraiser to keep the station alive after a decision by the Community Broadcasting Foundation to cut 100% of its operational funding. Now, this is a really serious blow, which affects not just Skid Row, but several community radio stations across the country. So could you start off by telling us um, a little bit about the funding cut and Skid Row's fundraiser, which, um, as I've mentioned before, aims for a 100% community-funded station? Yes, I can, and I'm so glad to be able to finally share this story uh, with not just the 3CR audience, but our wider community. Uh, This story for us really began back in March of this year 
Um, every year we apply to the Community Broadcasting Foundation in their yearly grant process. We apply for content funding, which supports uh, in-depth production of things like podcasts and training programs like our BIPOC youth collective Gang Gang, plus it supports our Indigenous and community language broadcasters as well. We also apply for operational funding, uh, and this supplements salaries and standard ongoing costs in any community radio station, like electricity, the rent, and the transmitter. So we submitted it in March, and then COVID hit, and our station went into lockdown, and the sector as a whole was just like, wow, how do we make radio now and make sure that we're safe? But also, how do we inform our communities and translate messages and make sure people know how to take care of themselves? So while we were managing that, the Community Broadcasting Foundation decided to halt the grant round in May, around May, June. That's typically when we would find out our outcome. And when they halted the grant process, they also created a COVID emergency fund, which involved moving 10% from every stream of funding, including our stream, which is ethnic funding because of our diverse station. And, you know, we kind of knew with some, we operated then with some expectation that our original outcomes would be funded to lesser amounts because we knew other stations that hadn't put in applications in March for whatever reason, maybe they didn't need it then or they didn't make the deadline, were now facing some dire situations. So there needed to be some emergency money that could also be accessed by them. And we didn't apply for that money because at that point we weren't in an emergency. We were stressed because we hadn't found out about our application, but we had some cash reserves and our funding had actually grown every year over the last three years. So, you know, we knew we were in a strong position and that the CBF would continue to invest in us. Then in late July, we finally get word that we're not receiving any operational funding. So this is nearly a month into the financial year that this would fund. And we were so shocked, like we were completely gutted and it just didn't make any sense because as we spoke to other stations and heard that other stations had also received zero and these were stations like us had high amounts of ethnic broadcasting hours. We have up to 40 hours a week in languages other than English on Radio Skid Row. So for stations like Skid Row to not receive any ethnic funding to make sure that those programs could stay on air, especially during a critical time, just didn't make any sense. And that's when we just started to investigate more and look at outcomes, look at the process, you know, this, the Community Broadcasting Foundation said they followed process and it was a tough year because of this COVID fund, but it it still didn't match up in zero. Like, 
And, and what really reflected that was our content outcomes, which is decided still by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, but a separate committee. And all the applications, including ours on that side, only saw a 2.5% drop in funding. You weren't seeing these big, huge zeros. And, yeah, that just told us one committee moved with empathy and the desire to really make sure everyone was supported and protected. And the other committee seemed to just lose sight of that. And, and that's a hard thing to pin down when it comes to a grant process. They followed all the steps, but it's just not in the spirit of community radio. And it's important that we ask those questions, that we hold them accountable. It's government funding and it's there to support ethnic voices, diverse voices. And if yeah. it's not doing that, we need to ask why. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think um, especially, as you've mentioned, during COVID, when um, I know at least in Victoria, but I can I can pretty much assume nationwide, government messaging around the pandemic, um, around policing concerns, you know, has, has really not been up to scratch when it comes to uh, communities who speak languages other than English, communities that are really serviced by community broadcasters. Um, and, you know, especially during the the uptick and um, sort of surge in Black Lives Matter movements around the world uh, to pull back on funding from a radical radio station that has really made it its mission to prioritize making space for these voices. Um, you know, it's it's really concerning and it's telling. Um, Very much so. Yeah. I, I, you know, over the last few months started saying on my show, Radio Skid Row, the station where black lives have always mattered. And that and that is the case of Skid Row. And and in, in the time we waited for our application to come through, uh, we were thriving. You know, people wanted to hear our voices. People needed to hear our voices. Community radio was vital to so many people, not just around the country, but around the world to stay connected with communities. And um, that's when we kind of, you know, we could have taken this and shut the doors. You know, I stood in front of the station and said, do we close? Is this the end of our road? We've been around for 37 years. And everyone said, hell no. Like, we need to fight. We need to raise this money. And we need to make sure that this station is here, not just for us, but for generations to come. There are always going to be communities that need radio. And that's how we got to this fundraiser. And turning to our community and saying, help us raise this $70,000 to keep this vital resource open and to keep it yours, you know, to keep it yours. If you're just joining us, you're listening to an interview that I did with Hannah Amuiro, who's a board member at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Hannah's joined me on the show to talk about the recent cut to Radio Skid Row's operational funding and the fundraiser that the station is organizing to keep the rent paid and the lights on. So with the fundraiser itself, um, the aim is, yeah, as, as we discussed, to be 100% community funded. Now, I was wondering if you could speak to what the difference would be um, in the in the way that the station is run if if the funding is coming just from community rather than from the government grants that usually uh, allow operational costs to be covered. 
Yeah, so this, what we've kind of been thinking about since this outcome, um, we've really kind of returned to our own history and what we can learn from it in terms of um, what a community-run and community-controlled organisation can look like and, you know, where there may have been missteps in the past. And what we really see this money as being able to do is, one, set a precedent for, you know, how much it costs to run a station in your community, but also to have funds that aren't attached to outcomes that can just go towards making this community platform better in whatever way the community needs. And that means for future generations, you know, as long as people need a space where their voice is heard, then we need to be there and we need to make sure that's protected and that only happens when we control the money because we live in a capitalist world, like, unfortunately. Ain't that right. I mean... I think a really important thing that you touched on there is, you know, de-linking funding from outcomes. Community radio is a part of an organic ecosystem of, you know, community relationships. And, and like we're really kind of building here on what initially Skid Row was started to do and how it was taken over by ethnic broadcasters, by indigenous people, by radical people. Um, because it wasn't being managed in the right ways. And while we want the community's financial support, I still believe there is a need for national government funding. But we need to make sure that we're protected when that funding is not being managed in ways that support our work. Yeah, and I think, you know, trying to make sure that there is a guarantee that community community organizations and by that I mean organizations that are really working in the service of community um our resource is so important and you know it's it's really scary that it's come to the come to the point where um you know that funding is no longer guaranteed and and stations really have to fight to be viable and it's so sad to me because this, the Community Broadcasting Foundation itself said 67% of stations were requesting emergency funding, in requesting dire help. They knew this and they still did this. And now thousands of hours of radio across the country that are sources of connection and resilience and survival for people are in jeopardy. That's why we're here is to say that things like that are not right. I mean, this is why we want to make sure that we can have this conversation on this show and that we sort of take it, you know, to, to the broader community. You know, this, the sort of role of, of community broadcasters in, in being embedded in communities, but also making a home for, for languages, for stories um, that are not showcased in mainstream media for counter narratives as well is just it's just so so important and really can't be overstated um yeah and i want to take that opportunity right now to thank 3cr here publicly and um, the staff and team members and volunteers and producers who did know about 
this outcome and have been supporting us privately behind the scenes for the last few months and just really staying solid in that community solidarity. Like it's, it, this is $70,000 to us, but the general fight and the general principle here is so much bigger and 3CR really understands that. And I just want to take the opportunity now to say thank you to you all. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, on it, it, in that vein of, you know, speaking about um, solidarity and the value of, of community radio, um, I was just wondering, what have some of your best moments at Skid Row been and what are some of your hopes for the station in the future? Um, well, as we said at the top, I've been on Skid Row since I was five. I'm now 31, I think. I'm 31. Um, so I have a lot of moments and I would say like just as a whole, my childhood, my teenage years on air with my friends, we'd catch the school bus there and swap tapes and CDs at school and then play our friends' requests. You know, those years and that community really taught me something that I value so much now. Um, as an adult and my time at Skid Row, I think Survival Guide, an amazing podcast by Lorna Munro and Joel Sherwood Spring. I was lucky enough to be a producer on season one and um, I was content coordinator at Skid Row during season two. And that really reaffirmed for me what Skid Row is about. It, it took us back to those roots of Radio Redfern where we were really supporting innovative, groundbreaking, radical voices who were fighting for sovereignty, you know, that's that fight, right? It's against colonization. And, and that just reminded me so much of what Skid Row is really about. So I always say that that's as an adult, my kind of the thing I really hold uh, and value because I learned a lot about how Skid Row can be taken and preserved for another generation from the work that they did. Absolutely. And um, as an avid listener to Survival Guide, I can say that that work is so, so valued, um, you know, even beyond the communities that it's produced about and for. Um, so where can listeners find out a bit more about Radio Skid Row itself? And, then, you know, obviously, because we're in the Melbourne context here, but also where can people contribute to the fundraiser? Okay. So the fundraiser is startsomegood.com forward slash Radio Skid Row 2020. And that's the crowdfunding platform we're using. It's an all or nothing platform. So if we don't raise the 70, we don't get the 70. Um, so, you know, Areej once called us, you know, I don't know if, um, does everyone down there know Areej? I don't know if I can just say that, throw that out there. Areej Noor. Yeah, um, I think everybody should know Areej Noor. <laughs> Original, who is um, on the wrap, has been at 3CR too. Uh, she said, well, the anarchists up here at Skid Row. That's what she said to me once um, when we were comparing notes as producers. She said, oh, you guys are anarchists. So we went all or nothing. Um, so it's startsomegood.com radio Skid Row 2020, and we're trying to get to $70,000. We've had an amazing start. So let's just end this hellish year big 
you know, let's end with something that will make us feel really good and empowered to get us into the next year. Um, for everything else Skid Row related, obviously follow us on social channels, Instagram, um, Facebook. Someone recently found the Twitter password. One day we'll tell that story, but that's just community radio life. Um, it's just Radio Skid Row. Yeah, and radioskidrow.org.au. <laughs> <laughs> is that everything did you oh. ask me about my hopes for the future or anything else i did ask you about your hopes for the future i was just going to say before that we will also um be including a link to the radio skid row fundraiser on our link tree which is on our instagram so that's at 3cr thursday breakfast and if you just click the link in our bio you can get to the fundraiser and um yeah, it'll be in our show notes as well for this week. So if you head to 3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast, you should also be able to find a link to the fundraiser there. Um, but yeah, before we wrap, what are some of your hopes for the future, um, for the future of Radio Skid Row, for the future of community radio? So my hopes for the future of the station, and that's what's so exciting about this fundraiser is I get to talk about some of this stuff publicly, is I would really love to see Radio Skid Row become a registered training institution um, and continue to create jobs and more innovation around production. I think we have really shown how strong we can be in our training and just opening up our airwaves to whoever needs to say what they need to say to speak truth to power. Um, and I'd love if we could do that all in-house, just train, accredit, produce, distribute. You know, that's my hope. The more control we can have, the better. Um, and then I would I'd love us to see see us possibly birth another platform in the way our elders did with Radio Redfern. That's one of the few things that I haven't been able to work out how we could replicate. Um, but if there's a community out there, out there that feels like they need a space to grow the seeds of their own platform, then Radio Skid Row is, is willing to walk that path, or at least I am, and I'm on the board for a little bit longer. So. Yeah, awesome. that, those are my hopes. Those are my hopes. Well, I mean, look, I've had the privilege of being able to visit uh, 98.9 FM in Minjin and yes. seeing just like how awesome the combination of in-house training and production and skill building and radio making is there. So, I mean, I think that would be awesome for Skid Row to go in that direction, too. Yes, and, and shout out to our kin up there. You know, these are all our connections as radical content makers in this sector, whether it's 3CR, whether it's, you know, up in Queensland, whether it's in New South Wales, whether it's remote area, like we're all in this together and we're doing something really special and really vital. So, yeah, shout out to all of you, anyone listening, who's in this practice we call community radio. It ain't yeah. for the faint of heart at all. Absolutely. And, you know, I would love to talk to, to more people about community radio, about people's experience broadcasting. So, you know, hit us up, hit us up on Instagram, hit me up on Twitter. Let's talk about it on air. 
Um, but for now, Hannah, thank you so, so much for joining me. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about this really important issue. And um, I wish you all the best for the fundraiser and we'll keep promoting it. Thank you so much. And um, just shout out to everyone out there who's gone through this lockdown and is still fighting on so many other levels. We see you, we hear you, and we're going to keep spreading your messages up here too. That was an interview with Hannah Amwiro, who's a board member at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Hannah took the time to join me on the show to discuss the recent cut to Radio Skid Row's operational funding and the station's push this week to fundraise to be a fully grassroots and community-owned station. Hi, 3CR listeners. I am Listic from your sister station, Radio Skid Row in Sydney. On top of everything 2020 has thrown at us, at Radio Skid Row, we are now facing our toughest challenge yet, and we need your support. For the first time in 30 years, the Community Broadcasting Foundation did not award us any funding for operations. From our perspective, these funding cuts are a contradiction of the core values of community radio to give the people a voice. We have launched a huge new fundraising campaign, which is running until December. By donating to Radio Skid Row, you are securing the future of radical grassroots media by and for the community. Go to startsomegood.com slash Radio Skid Row 2020 and donate now. And that's all we have time for today on 3CR's Thursday Breakfast Program. So just a recap of what we took you through. Uh, we started off with an interview by Carly with Adam Wilson, who's the senior drug outreach lawyer at Fitzroy Legal Service, who spoke to Carly about the effects of policing and surveillance during COVID-19 on the service's clients. Uh, there was then an interview by myself with Aisha, who's a Batakanjawa mother, storyteller and community organizer, who joined me to discuss their narrative essay, Undocumented. We then heard an interview from the Black Bloc with new senator for Victoria, Lydia Thorpe, who spoke with Viv Malo and Mariki Onis and uh, about Senator Thorpe's first week in Parliament and plans for the Senate. And finally, I spoke with Hannah Amwiro, who's a board member at Radio Skid Row in Sydney, about the fundraiser to try and raise basically the entirety of Radio Skid Row's operational funding for the next year. Um, so before we go, we just wanted to make sure that we plugged a really important initiative um, that is going on right now to support incarcerated trans and gender diverse community members. Carly, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, so this is a national fund to provide financial and material support to trans and gender diverse people who are incarcerated. This fund aims to support uh, trans people in prison and those post-release returning to their communities. So listeners, if you wanted to just head to GoFundMe and search for Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Fund, and we'll also plug this on our Instagram page as well. And yeah, really important to support this kind of fund. I think it's probably the first of its kind, really, in so-called Australia. And so often trans and gender diverse people are left out of conversations um, in regards to talking about prison and prison abolition. And yeah, this is such an important 
fund. Um, it's going to be supporting people uh, to buy gender affirming clothing and underwear, toiletries, binders, assisting families to provide phone credit, um, postage costs because it's so expensive for people just to be sending like letters to family and friends. Um, it's going to this funds can also buy um, books and reading resources for people and most importantly medical expenses that aren't covered by the state. Yeah, so important and really speaking to those um, conversations that we've had in the episode today about the importance of community care really holding people when the systems of the state and privatized services just don't cut it. So, yeah, please do head there and check it out. And um, if you miss any of the show, you'll be able to find it on our website at www.3cr.org.au slash Thursday dash breakfast. Um, but that's all we've got for you this week. So now to Lost in Science. See you, Carly. See you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.